Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Teibel, and I'm based here in the Washington, D.C. area with Peace Catalyst International, and I'm joined by my co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I am Allie Bernison, as Becca said, and I'm with PCI in the L.A. area. Um, if you guys enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This just helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen and makes it easier for people to find us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for doing that. And also, as a part of our current series on Afghanistan, we wanted to invite all of you to submit questions for our last podcast guest, which will be aired in January, that episode, um, with our friend and colleague, Harinissa Fariad. She is from Afghanistan originally, and she's been working really hard um, locally here in the Northern Virginia area through the Adams Center Mosque um, to help Afghan refugees and also um, provide insight on leadership boards such as Lutheran Social Services who are working to, to help serve refugees locally. Um, so we're going to be interviewing her for our last episode of this series, and we want to invite you all to submit any questions that you might have for her as somebody who is an expert on what's been going on um, in the country and also locally with um, new arrivals from Afghanistan. So if you'd like to submit a question for her, you can do that by emailing our amazing podcast producer, Nicole Gibson, and you can send her an email at Nicole at peacecatalyst.org. I love that opportunity that people get to have some kind of back and forth with one of our guests and of course, one of your close friends. Um, that's really cool. Yeah. So this yep. week, every week, actually, we like to share a peace quote. And so this particular quote is from the author of The Kite Runner, um, Khaled Hosseini. And I am going to read it. Here we go. Refugees are mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children with the same hopes and ambitions as us except that a twist of fate has bound their lives to a global refugee crisis on an unprecedented scale. And it'll become clear why we are highlighting that particular quote when you guys hear our interview and our conversation. Yeah, and really excited for today's interview um, as we continue our current series where we're listening and learning from Afghans as well as those who are working alongside them for peace in Afghanistan and to help serve local refugees from Afghanistan, both in the U.S. and abroad. So this week we are talking to Lynn Abraham Yadlin, who works with Home for Refugees in L.A. County to help refugees from Afghanistan and other countries to feel more welcome here in the States and ultimately experience a greater sense of belonging when they come to the U.S. And as a career um, music professional, Lynn sets the example for all of us to be peace builders in our everyday lives and communities. And Lynn is someone I have gotten the pleasure of getting to know, and she is incredible. So we're just so, so excited for this conversation. We're so honored to have you with us today, Lynn, sharing about your story as a peacemaker and working with refugees um, from Afghanistan locally. Could you just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and, um, yeah, and your story and how you got into this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, good morning to all of you. And uh, Becca and Elise, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I I feel like the work that I do and the work that we're doing with refugees is so important and any chance to bring that work out and let people experience what they can do and what we're doing is such a great opportunity. So thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm a wife of a wonderful husband and a mom of four awesome daughters who live 
scattered around the United States in various places and who are doing great work in and of their own right. Um, and by career and by trade and by training, I am a musician. I worked as a conductor for many years and then did some work in educational outreach, bringing music and music appreciation to schools in Orange County that might not otherwise have the chance to experience classical music. And I still teach private music lessons, but um, it's only been in the last, I don't know, maybe four or five years that I've been actively involved in specific peacemaking efforts, partly through the work of TELOS, um, a peacemaking organization, and also mainly working with refugees, um, the organization called Home for Refugees. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, how did you find Home for for refugees, how did you get connected with that organization? Yeah, so I'd always been interested in the idea or, or engaged with the idea of refugee work. Um, being raised Jewish, there's that refugee picture is always in your background. And then coming to Faith in Christ when I was in high school, it sort of even more amplified the um, desire to be involved with refugees or the call to work with those that are aliens and strangers. Um, but I think for me, just like for so many other people, the major catalyst was that 2017 photo that was all over the news of that little Syrian boy that washed up on the shores of the, on the beaches in Turkey. And that picture just pierced my heart as it pierced the heart of so many others. And I think that was what made me say, okay, it is time to get up and moving and start to do something practical instead of just wringing my hands and saying, oh, oh, this is so terrible. I think that was the catalyst for me. Hmm. Wow. That is, yeah, that's incredible to hear just the the impact of, of imagery and what we see. And I, I feel like Often when we see those shocking images on the news, it might lead to fear and even more distance and maybe some dissonance there where it's like, well, that's not, you know, happening in my backyard. So it's just easier to like, how do, where do I even begin? So I guess that's my next question for you. How did you know where to begin in that and how, kind of how to, you, you know, you had this desire to get involved with refugee work in some capacity, um, yeah, how did you how did you get connected with Home for Refugees and and also yeah, then can you explain some of the work of the organization? Yeah, yeah, totally. So it took a little while. Um, I started to look just to look for an organization, and I found World Relief, which was doing a ton of refugee resettlement. But it took me a little while to get moving, and by the time I got myself organized and had gone to like a training session and was ready to plunge in, um, that was the elections and uh, President Trump instituted the Muslim ban. And so World Relief in Orange County closed their department that was doing refugee resettlement and just began to work with immigration. And uh, so at that time, our, the executive director and founder of Home for Refugees, uh, her name is Minda Schweitzer, was working for World Relief at the time as a volunteer and said, you know, there are still refugees coming to our area. I wonder if there's something that I can do, something that I can start that would fill that gap that exists now because World Relief is not long, no longer doing this work. Um, and she started, we started Home for Refugees with, with just one family, just kind of an idea and a dream and a thought. And now we have over 60 active teams across the United States that are either resettling refugees or like training and fundraising and preparing to do that refugee work. So it's pretty amazing. And it was just a friend of mine that was beginning to get involved with Home for Refugees at the time and said, you know, here's a here's a way you could do this. And it's it's up close and personal. It's not some big a nameless, faceless organization. This is somebody like that you'll be working in the trenches with. And so I've been involved with them for a while for um, just about four years. Wow. That's incredible. That's amazing. And I, I love hearing how you actually saw that gap that was missing and, and needed to be filled and decided to step in and 
um, take action on that. So I'm curious with Home for Refugees, do you all work, you work with resettling refugees, obviously, but what does that look like in terms of, are you setting up houses or bringing in furniture? Kind of like, what does that process look like? Yeah, the, the way that you frame that question is is such a good way of framing it because the answer is or could be all of the above. So um, you many organizations will say, okay, so we're going to take on the role of furnishing an apartment. So that's all they do. Uh, uh, they get word that a refugee is coming to town. They say, okay, they go to work. They look for volunteers, the donations. They find cheap sales and stuff like that. They furnish the apartment and then they get out and they're done. Other organizations will say, how about if we just furnish the apartment with food, like that first big shopping. But um, Home for Refugees has a model that I think is really successful. And it's also really, um, it's really intimate. It requires a pretty strong commitment, but um, it's also used by other uh, nonprofits that are working with refugees, and they often call it community sponsorship teams. We call them home teams, but those are teams of five, sometimes six or seven people. They're often from the same faith community, faith or community group, and they commit to coming alongside a refugee family to help them resettle in their community, but they commit for the time length of a full year. So they commit to walking alongside this family for an entire year. And we often partner with a resettlement agency like um, International Rescue Committee or IRIS, which is the Interfaith Refugee and Immigration Services, but not always. So it's a one-year commitment. And we basically work with the refugees in all areas. We help find housing. We help them find furnishings for the apartment. We work with social services, finances, medical and health services, job searching and onboarding, ESL, kids education. I mean, anything that they need, that's what we'll do. And so these teams become really intimately connected to the family and it transitions after that year from a kind of helper, helpy, or we're helping you and you're kind of receiving from us throughout the year that translates into a much more balanced friendship. And then these friendships mm. go on and really last, I mean, I would think, you know, for a lifetime. So I, I think about, I got involved as a volunteer and I worked with a family from Afghanistan and that was four years ago and I'm still connected to them. We still see each other often and it's, it's just such an enrichment to my life, the relationship that I have with these people. So I think that's a model that works really, really well. And like I said, I think it does require a greater commitment because a year is, is a long time. Um, I will say that at the beginning, when a family first arrives, you feel like there's no way you can keep that pace up for the entire year because it's everything all at once. You know, we're moving on Wednesday. We need uh, to get our driver's licenses on Friday. Uh, we need to get some doctors because the kids need vaccinations for school and it's all happening, all the things all at the same time. But then it calms down and it just begins to transition even after three or four months to much more of a friendship. So that's the model that we use. That's so beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I love that personal connection and just being a friend. Um, to families and yeah, that's amazing. So your role within that is um, what exactly, what are you doing currently? Yeah, so I started out, like I said a minute ago, as a volunteer and I worked with a um, part of a team, I was on a home team with a family from Afghanistan. And once that ended, I became involved with a different team, still as a volunteer, and this was with a, a refugee, oh, excuse me, an asylum-seeking family from Chechnya, and that was a completely different ballgame because they were suffering real fear of, like, death in Chechnya, and they wound up getting a tourist visa to Mexico, uh, yeah, a tourist visa to Mexico, walked across the border during the time where people were not walking across the border, I don't even know. They don't know. Nobody knows how they even got through. But um, 
they did and called us and said, hey, we're here. The dad was put in detention. The mom wore an ankle monitor for six or nine months. And so that was a much longer commitment because asylum seekers have way less in the way of any kind of help from any federal or state agencies than us, than refugees do. So that time ended. And again, the friendship still um, remains. But at that point, an opportunity came up to join the Home for Refugees staff. So at, in the role of basically home team coach. So what I'm doing now is um, starting by recruiting and then forming and then training and then helping these teams to come together and to fundraise, sometimes to find housing, and then we get matched with a family. So, and then I work with that team throughout the course of a year. So I'm working with five different home teams. Two of them have families already. The other three are waiting and ready for their families. Um, and that's my role is as coach, just to, to shepherd them, to come alongside them, to encourage them, to guide them as best I can. And I'm learning still often. I'll, we'll spend our times together Googling, what do you do if your work permits haven't arrived? And they said they were supposed to have arrived a week ago or, but um, yeah, that, that's my role. And it's, it's so much fun because I get to use the expertise sort of <laughs> that I developed while being a volunteer, but um, I get to work with these amazing groups of volunteers who just like just call them and yeah I'll be there no problem you got it and and they're vibrant and active and it's wonderful and then I also get to work with these amazing refugees that oh, such resilience and such stamina and such positive outlooks it's just incredible so it's a joy for me what I do is your joy it's I'm so grateful that's so beautiful yeah and I imagine that there's probably an influx of refugees from Afghanistan specifically um, during this time so what has what has that looked like um, for you all it's I I can't believe how much things have changed in our organization over the last like three months since this, you know, we call it for lack of a better word, like the crisis. And it, I mean, it, for the refugees, it really is a crisis. So, I mean, it used to be that you came as a refugee and, and you had amazing challenges. I mean, they were, even if you came on the very organized process of being an SIV holder, a special immigrant visa holder, which means that, um, you are entitled to this kind of visa if you did something that directly helped the United States, either the government or an NGO. So it could be that you were just somebody who was cleaning the embassy. It could be you were a bodyguard. It could be you were a translator. And it could be that you worked one-on-one -on -one with um, even, even special forces or soldiers in the Afghan military. But those people were entitled to a special kind of visa called a special immigrant visa. So even if you began that process, which is extremely detailed, extremely slow, and extremely long, and you got through the process and you got your visa, even then, frequently, you had to leave very suddenly. You had to leave like under cover of darkness and night because you couldn't be seen as leaving. You knew that you were putting your family in danger and your family often didn't even know that you were leaving because that would put them in such danger. So then you arrive in the United States, you've got this major trauma behind you, leaving everything that's familiar to you, probably because of some event that happened that caused that, or maybe just an accumulation of events. And then you find yourself in this community where nobody speaks your language. The customs are different. The culture is different. The way of doing business is different. The way of getting a job is different. In Afghanistan, you get a job because you know somebody who has a job. I mean, that's pretty much the way it works. Whereas here, you need to write a resume and you need to go to interviews. And I mean, everything is different and nobody speaks your language unless you find a connection to the Afghan community. And sometimes you're afraid to do that because you're afraid to trust anybody. You don't know if you can trust the government. So even those challenges for somebody arriving in a completely orderly, um, 
expected manner. Those challenges are difficult. And then we look at the families that are arriving now and you've all, we've all seen the pictures. We've seen the clip of that, that C-17 leaving the tarmac with people just like clamoring to get on and people running along the runway. And the people that are leaving now, they just got out. They saw the writing on the wall. They got themselves someplace. They called in some connection to somebody and they got out. And if they got out, it's because somebody allowed them to get out. So it's not just people that are coming that haven't been approved in some way at all. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea that people are just flooding our country with no authorization. Everybody has some sort of authorization, but, but these people are even more challenged because it's not like they've got it, the, the SIV holders have their paperwork has been applied for. So they frequently have green cards already. Their social security cards have been applied for. Their work permits have been applied for. The people that are coming out now, it's just, they're starting from scratch. And so there's the whole process of getting all of their paperwork from whatever, they call it a humanitarian parolee. Parolee, like they did something wrong, right? It's a terrible designation. Mm. But um, getting it from that st status to the special immigrant visa status, and then getting all the other paperwork. And fortunately, the resettlement agencies can help with that and often do. But unfortunately, there are far too many cases where either the resettlement agencies are just overbooked or the people came and have been here for too long to be eligible for resettlement agency services. So that's challenges for them as well as for us because we're doing things that normally would be done by somebody that's a professional and knowing how to do this. And for the refugees, it's just, what do we do? What's our next step? What do we, how do we untangle this huge mass of red tape that's staring us in the faces? So the challenges are manifold and yet I look back on the families that have been here for three or four years that we helped worked with like right in the very beginning. And it's amazing. They're living their lives. They're engaged in their community. They've found friends and a life and are, are thriving, even if under different circumstances than they would have had when they were still in Afghanistan. And the, the, one more thing about the people that are leaving now and others that left earlier is the um, just dreaded fear that they have for their family members who are back in Afghanistan. They mm. are frantic. Uh, the family I'm working with now as a coach that arrived in February, they have 16 family members that are still immediate family members that are still left in Afghanistan. And from what he tells me, they're in hiding. They're going from house to house. They stay for a week or five days and then go to a different city. And he didn't hear from one of his brothers for five days. And he was frantic, just not knowing were they arrested, were they killed? And there's no way of finding out. So that's a challenge that's added now that maybe didn't exist quite as much in you know, July or August. That's a lot. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I threw a yeah. lot at you, but. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's overwhelming just to, just to hear. And so I can't, I truly cannot imagine um, being, being in a new context and having to navigate all of these incredibly complicated, difficult services in an, in another language. And so just having, a group of committed individuals, I imagine, would be so incredibly helpful just to have, you know, the relational support, but then also, you know, at least having some sort of insight into the system. Not that, I mean, yeah, not that I would know where to begin. I, I imagine it requires quite a bit of training. <laughs> That's why you're the coach. Um, but yeah, oh my goodness. So yeah, I, I'm curious about that piece. Like, the role of, of relationship um, and just the centrality of the community building and the integration um, in the model of Home for Refugees. And I would just, yeah, we'd be curious to hear um, what, how you see that playing out or important or distinguishing feature of the organization and why, and why it's important in, um, for resettling communities to have that connection to um, one individual, a group of individuals that, yeah, are committed to get to know them and, and walk with them for a year and then even longer. 
Yeah, I, I, for me personally, that's what makes Home for Refugees and this, you know, this community sponsorship, this home team model, such a wonderful and life-giving and positive uh, way, method of doing this because it is all about relationships. You know, like Brian Stevenson talks about proximity and other other peacemaking and peace building organizations talk about becoming involved integrally in the lives of the people that we're working with because helping from the outside, first of all, I think sometimes you just help the way you think is the right way to help and it might not be the best way to help, but also because only by knowing somebody intimately can you really find out what their needs, what their desires, what their dreams are. And so, you know, I, th- I think about the, um, the man that I am working with now just arrived a couple of weeks ago and he said, my life is here now. I'm, I'm here with my family. He was able to bring his wife, three of his sister, his three sisters and his parents, and he got them out. I mean, I think they left or arrived on August 21st. So, I mean, they just got out and he said, my life is here now. I'm going to build a life. I had uh, a very, very bright future ahead of me in Afghanistan. This man speaks excellent English. Um, and he's able to articulate what I think many of the other refugees can't because of their language. He said, I had a great life plan. I think we were going to have a solid future. My sister's going to have careers, professions. They've been educated. They were working. We had this wonderful life. And I just want to take that and I want to transfer it here to America. This is my home now. This will be my home. And I want the same kind of well-lived life. He's not talking necessarily about like financial prosperity or but he's talking about uh, a well-rounded, well-lived life in the United States. And that's something that I would never hear about if all I did was come in and put some furniture in an apartment. Um, and I think for the refugees, it's just for the people that we're working with, it's just lovely to have somebody who knows this culture so well and is just really winds up in a in a love familiar relationship with people that want to be a part of their lives so i i mean i think the i think back to the second and even the third years i think with my very first afghan family we did a thanksgiving dinner the day after thanksgiving we invited them over for thanksgiving and like they had never seen a bird as large as this turkey that was <laughs> on my table. you know i mean if they had turkey at all it was like cut into parts or into whatever. Um, and the customs, you know, what is this cranberry thing? They'd never heard of it. And, and <laughs> just going around the table and giving thanks and being a part of this community. It's, I think it's life-changing for us as volunteers or as coaches or however we're involved and for the families themselves. In addition to the fact that I think about what it was like for me is like for me to try to look at those, one of these applications from social security or social services, whatever, and think, I have no idea how to fill this out. And it's my native language. What is going through their minds? So, and the fact that we can do it over the course of a year, because stuff doesn't stop. You don't stop getting forms from the government after two weeks. Um, A thing that I learned, for example, just a specific story is that after, I believe it's six months, you get your first bill from the government for your flights. So my first family, didn't know what that was, tossed it. And, you know, I mean, think about it. You get mail all the time that says, hey, you want a three-day trip to Catalina and you toss it because, you know, right? I mean, so then they looked at their credit score and they saw that it had tanked and they called me and said, what happened? What did we do? We pay our bills. We pay. So it took a little investigating, but we found out it was because they hadn't, they were like defaulting on this loan that none of us ever really understood was a loan for their plane tickets to the United States. And while they only need to pay something really small, like five, $10 a month over the course of however many years to pay it off, um, they still have to pay it and they didn't. So like that happens, that was like six months in. And just a little side note, I was talking to a woman who is, who's been here for years and she told me that her family took 20 years to pay off those flight loans because they paid the minimum whatever for not because they couldn't afford more. They just did it that way. It's just the way it was. So um, 
kind of forgot what the question was, and I'm not sure I answered it. <laughs> you <bit>. did. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I thank you for sharing all of that. Um, there is somebody uh, who works with Beck and I on PCI staff, and he always talks about the difference between a posture of solidarity and a posture of charity. And I just love that you keep emphasizing the point that like, you know, we are not helping them. This is not like us stooping down to their level. It's like we are being helped, you know, and just, yeah, the, the deep conviction that, you know, we're, we're connected and our, you know, our, the concept of mutual flourishing that I know Telos talks a lot about. And yeah, I just, that's what I'm hearing from what you were saying. And I, and I just, I love that you, that you bring that up. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely central to Home for Refugees as well. We, we, one, of, one of the trainings that we do is devoted to the idea of when helping can hurt. <clears throat> as We do a cultural orientation as well, but half of that training is how can we avoid doing harm when we try to do good? And it's really easy to have that happen. And I, I, I have to confess, there are times when I just, I listen to what my families are saying and I think, oh, would you just do it my way? You know, it gets, it gets frustrating sometimes because I... But but allowing people to own their own agency is so important. Just, yeah, if that's a mistake, maybe, that you feel like you need to make, then you need to make that mistake um, mm-hmm. and go for it. And I will be here if there's a way that I can help you recover from that. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe it was better for you that way. But it's really, really important to us at Home for Refugees as well, and to me personally. That's so beautiful. I think that's so important because we also like locally, we partner with the refugee family from Syria and through my church. Um, And it's just, it's, we have the same ethos of like, we're here to serve like what you say that you need or want from us. Like we're here to do that with you. But I think the solidarity piece really is so huge because it's just saying like, I'm here with you, whatever that looks like. Um, So that's Absolutely. so beautiful. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and I can speak to the the nonsensical forms and things that <laughs> they get sent. And I'm like, I don't even get this. And I don't know what to do. And <laughs> so let's exactly. figure it out together. <laughs> it's insane. So um, where, Lynn, where do you see opportunities for um, faith communities and the wider society um, to become more welcoming and open and invitational to those who may be on the fringes of community and specifically those who desire to maybe increase their involvement in, you know, the crisis um, in Afghanistan? Um, and how would you kind of suggest that they could do that? Yeah. So in general, I would encourage you, if you even think that you might want to be involved, do something, take a step, even if it's a small step, don't to a refugee organization, see if there is a place in your community that's doing some work and maybe get involved even at the most basic level of, okay, I'll be on that team that, I don't know, supplies groceries. I mean, how, how hard is that to, you know, to take a budget and go once a month or so to just buy a mess of groceries and stick them in an apartment? You can, you can get involved on a very, very general level. Um, learn more, read more, and let that reading and let the, I mean, you, you can't open a paper these days, it seems like, without reading something about somebody coming here from Afghanistan, personal stories that have to touch your heart. But specifically, I would say get involved in an organization. I mean, see if you can, if you can't make the full year commitment, then get involved in a way that's just a little bit less Commit, like committed or demi- demands a, a, a lower commitment. Maybe you can help tutor somebody in ESL for a little while. If you are in a position to do this, be willing to hire refugees. Be willing to rent to them. They're, you know that they're going to come in without uh, credit history. Be willing to rent to them under the ho- in the hopes that these are people that are extremely hardworking and are going to do everything in their power not to default on rent. 
make them welcome in your neighborhood. Make their kids welcome in your schools. You know, I mean, there are so many ways that you could get involved on a small scale. Um, and on a larger scale, Home for Refugees has teams all over the country. You can go to our website and express some interest in Home for Refugees. It's just homeforrefugeesusa.org. And there may be a home team in your community. And if not, we can probably refer you to some other kind of organization that's doing community sponsorship. You will see that the rewards will be, will far outweigh any, I don't know, sacrifice. I don't even like to use that word, but any, um, anything that you outlay will, will far You'll, you'll reap far more than that, I think. Mm. It'd be an amazing experience for you. And I, just, just one more small thought, um, and that is when you were asking before about uh, why a relationship's important. I wanted to say at that point that um, the Middle Eastern culture in general and Afghan culture in particular is so connected to not just immediate family, but the, the clan or the tribe or like your extended family frequently living together in large units. And when they come here, they're leaving that all behind. And so having a group of people come alongside of them as a as a familial type unit, as a, a unit that feels like a family is something that's just so refreshing to this, their souls, I think. Um, it's really important as well. It's mm. beautiful. Um, well, and I think we should probably mention, Lynn, the cool connections that the three of us have to each other. Because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think that's an important part of the story. And you guys are connected through Telos Table. And then I'm connected to you through going on Telos trips with your daughters, two of your daughters. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. And we're connected through because of you, Becca, because you were like, hey, I think there's a Telos Table starting in your area. Or are you connected oh, that's right. with David? Anyway, yeah. So it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. I love the connections. It's but can it's, you tell? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was no, going to ask you because amazing. I, you find connections where you just don't expect them. It's great, yeah. which means you kind of need to be on your best behavior all the time because you never know when somebody's going to know somebody who knows you and report back, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's a big problem for you, Lynn. Not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but could you tell us a little bit about the Telos table and what that looked like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say maybe a year ago or even a little bit more, TELUS had the idea of putting together a cohort of hosts um, to host what they were calling a TELUS table, which would be a group of people that come together, um, possibly already knowing each other, possibly all knowing the same person, possibly not even knowing each other, but knowing of somebody that's interested in the greater idea of peacemaking as opposed to peacekeeping. So actually working to make peace, which is very different from peacekeeping, which means you keep quiet and let things stay the way they are. Um, so generally peacemaking and then more specifically in connection with either Israel-Palestine or kind of expanded then to racial injustice in the United States and particularly in the American South. And so they did a series of trainings over, I would say like four to six months where they put together a curriculum and trained a group of, I think we were about 16 starting, I'm not sure that we ended with 16, but 16 or so, between 15 and 20 table hosts in the hopes that they would put together these tables to come together four times a year and do a series of two or three tables based on um, either a specific topic or in general, a set of six principles and six practices of peacemaking that were very carefully and beautifully crafted by the Tele staff over a period of time. Um, and they include some of the things that we talked about today, sort of centering and amplifying the voices of the marginalized listening to understand, 
holding competing truths in tension is not one that we mentioned today, but those are some of the things that Telos is emphasizing. And they really reach and apply in so much more than Israel-Palestine or racial justice. So I think about my particular table and I have people that I know from my church community. I have people that I know from the neighborhood that I know had a connection to Israel-Palestine and had no idea where they were in terms of political or like progressive conservative. I had no idea even what their views were on Israel-Palestine, but I knew they were interested. I had people that were coming not having a whole lot of interest or experience in Israel-Palestine, but were finding it impossible to talk to members of their own family because they had become so politically divided. And so this very diverse group of people, um, and then I had you know people like Ali and Noah that I had never met before that heard about this and said, hey, can we join? I'm like, of course you can join. My table's crowded, but we'll just add an extra chair. We can we can make room. That, like For me, it's all about when there's not room at the table, make a longer table and add a, add another chair. Um, so people that just didn't know each other at all. And oh gosh, I was overwhelmed. And Ellie, I think you can affirm by the openness and vulnerability and willingness to share of these people who, like I said, didn't know each other from Adam. Some of them had connection to nobody else in the room except for me. And some not even with a connection to me, so or a prior connection. So, um, so they created this curriculum. We did our first one kind of in general on some principles and practices of peacemaking, and the second one was just recent. We're in the middle of it now on an issue of uh, child detention, child military detention in Israel-Palestine. Um, it feels like a little bit of a fringe issue, but it's an issue that it's hard to disagree about because it's just something that's horribly unjust and terrible. So um, it's been amazing. It's been amazing to get to know the people in my table. And it's been so wonderful to be a part of this cohort of table leaders. We just got together yesterday for our little holiday get together and seeing their faces for the first time in a couple of months was just so lovely. I mean, oh, there they are, you know, it's just so great. So I'm very grateful to tell us for um, giving me language and tools to do the work that I feel so called to do with refugee resettlement, with any political activity that I have, with kind of a, a series that we're doing in my, in my church community with what we call continually learning, where we've explored racial justice, LGBTQ, mental health, and putting together resources. And that framework, that language has been really invaluable to me. So I'm grateful to tell us and for providing that framework. That's incredible. Yeah, I know they're really important um, peacemaking partners for us too as an organization. So it's really cool to see all of this collaboration and cross-pollination and learning from each other how to be better peacemakers um, in our communities. So thank you so much, Lynn, for sharing that. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you, Lynn. This is so great. I, yeah, I just, I learned a ton and um, yeah, I'm, I'm so privileged to know a bit more about Home for Refugees. And I think just that encouragement of, of like, if you have even the littlest, like not, you know, if you feel a, a little tug towards the work, like just, yeah, just take a small step and see where that leads. Start where you are, start small, but but do it, you know, I loved that. So thank you. Sure. The danger is you might get drawn in deep, but that's a good danger. <laughs> so what a great conversation. I just absolutely loved hearing from her experience, you know, and kind of how she started with Home for Refugees as a volunteer and just someone who wanted to learn more and then how, you know, her involvement has just increased over the years and um, just really, really touched by her encouragement to all of us to get, to get involved in various ways. If that's something we feel um, called or, or drawn to in a particular way. Um, so mm -hmm. Becca, I'm just curious to hear, because I know that you, you have experienced 
working with resettling communities. And um, I mean, working with is probably even the wrong way to say that, just walking with and being friends with and getting to know people who are coming to the States. Um, So I would just, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about what, what that's been like for you. And if you were connecting to any, any parts of Lynn's um, story or, or journey with all of this in a particular way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Lynn is such a great example of somebody who's living her life as a peacemaker, right? Because her career is not in peacemaking, but she's she's being a peacemaker. And, um, you know, I'm always so inspired by people like her and <laughs> just amazed at, yeah, like you're saying, how she's coming alongside refugees. And yeah, I really, I really connected with what she was sharing about how we come alongside um, people who are experiencing uh, the, you know, traumatic, um, yeah, traumatically being pulled from their homes and having to resettle in a foreign land and learn a new language and like maybe in a community that doesn't have their religion as the majority or, or their ethnicity as the majority and um, kind of just going through all of that. I just can't even imagine how hard that is. Um, <clears throat> and I think I really connected with what she was saying about like really coming alongside people who are going through that is not to not like a top-down approach of like, mm. we know what you need and like we're going to give it to you, but coming next to them and saying, I want to stand with you and be with you, like you're saying, in solidarity. And how can I best do that? Um, Because I think we can certainly, of course, like have ideas about what we think is best for them or like what actions we think they should take to like make their lives better or something like that. But I think something I've really appreciated about the team I I serve with locally here through my church um, National Community Church, got to give a little shout out, Um, (laughs) is that, you know, it's really asking the family what they want and what they need from us. And how can we, how can we support you? How can we come alongside you? Like, what would be most helpful for you? And of course, maybe we have connections or like resources that they may not know about yet. So we can always like present that to them, present information and say, hey, there's this, you know, this ESL class or there's this other thing happening. Like, would you be interested in that? Um, So like, yeah, I guess in a nutshell, it's kind of that idea of of solidarity. And and I think it's it's so powerful for for this family specifically that we are friends with to I think for them to have community like exactly what Lynn was was talking about like being part of the fabric of a community and knowing that they have friends they have people who are gonna like show up when they need something and who are gonna help out um that they're not alone and even that they like have advocates because you know not speaking the language, their kids translate everything for them and like just, Mm. but being being able to, yeah, just provide whatever is most helpful for them um, has been really key. So I, I heard that a lot from Lynn's story and was really just encouraged by the way that um, Home for Refugees is approaching that. So really, really. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I greatly admire and um, just see the value in that, like in how in how relationships are key in integrating into a new community and how it's not just about, you know, the getting the social security card and all of the other things that um, are involved with like a process of resettling, which, yeah, by the way, as, as she was going into depth and all that, I was like, I'm just, this sounds so incredibly daunting. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, you bring up a great point about like language barrier. And I mean, just thinking about the times when I've had to deal with, you know, even things as like piddly as like the DMV, you know, and how that can be like a huge task, you know, and very overwhelming. And then that like, yeah, that would just be the most minor of issues that, um, those who are resettling have to deal with. Um, Mm -hmm. so on top of all of that, um, which might take like a whole bunch of your energy and time when you're adapting to life in the States. Um, yeah. How do you find people? How do you find, um, friends who you connect with? And so just home for refugees serving as that liaison, 
Um, and it sounds like the work that your church does as well um, to kind of connect families and individuals to um, others who care for them and are ready to listen and not necessarily ready or, um, n- you know, don't need to prescribe solutions, but are just ready to listen and learn with. Um, yeah, I, I also mm-hmm. really admire that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I think it's, it's also like when I was talking about being an advocate, like I was just thinking of an example that I'll share. Like I remember when one of the girls in middle school asked if I could email her guidance counselor to ask about a class that she wasn't supposed to be in. And it's like, that's so like simple, but Mm -hmm. I think even things as simple as that can, yeah, just speak to like exactly what you're saying. Like knowing that you have friends, knowing that you have people there. And it's so cool to see organizations like Home for Refugees, like building those connections and creating pathways for amazing people like Lynn to (laughs) do that and for her to invite others to do that as well. Because I I realized like using the word advocate might be like, what does that mean? But (laughs) even just in in small ways of like, yeah, just being present. Um, So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Taking taking people's lead and responding to where they invite you to to partner. And I think um, I also just love how Lynn is leading the telos table that you're attending. And, um, you know, she just she's an amazing peacemaker and um, so cool to see the impact that she's having on others too, inviting them into that space. Yeah. Yeah. No, in so many different contexts, she's kind of applying what she's learning in one space to another, um, which is really cool. And I think it's like, I'm learning as I'm getting involved with this podcast, just how many different ways peacemaking and peace building can look um, and how, you know, from leading a table where we talk about Israel, the conflict in Israel-Palestine and um, what what we can do as peace builders here in the States um, to, yeah, having conversations with, um, you know, a, a chef who's helping extend hospitality to refugees. Um, it's just, yeah, I, it's just incredible to see the, the many different avenues where your peace building journey can take you, um, down. And yeah, Lynn is a great example of that as she's kind of working across various issues and spaces. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's truly inspiring. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peace building work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.